The episode you're about to hear is sponsored by Journal of Experimental Biology. The journal is published by the Company of Biologists, a nonprofit that has been supporting and inspiring the biological community since 1925. JEB publishes research about the form and function of organisms at all levels of biological organization. With this episode, we partner with Journal of Experimental Biology to highlight a scientist that often publishes in their journal. To find out more about the Journal of Experimental Biology, visit jeb.biologists.org. That's jeb.biologists.org. In November 2018, reports from Northern Australia described bats dropping dead out of trees. The disaster occurred during an intense heat wave in which temperatures reached as high as 41.5 degrees Celsius or 107 degrees Fahrenheit. According to the BBC, the heat wave's impacts continue to be felt for weeks while volunteers and others scrambled to aid wildlife. In early 2019, researchers from Western Sydney University concluded that the heat had killed at least 23,000 spectacled fruit bats, a third of the entire Australian population. The heat wave was catastrophic and unfortunately not a one-off incident. According to the World Meteorological Organization, the six warmest years on record, including 2020, have all occurred in the past 15 years. Across the globe, climate change is making extreme weather more common. These climate shifts are having massive effects, more droughts, more floods, and more heat waves, many resulting in these mass die-offs. In Australia last year, wildfires devastated the country, with 3,000 homes destroyed, 42 million acres burned, and a billion animals killed. In November, the Australian summer, Sydney hit a new record, back-to-back spring days over 40 degrees Celsius, separated by the hottest November night ever recorded. Climate change has done more than just turn up the heat. It has also made extreme weather less predictable, which is a lot more dangerous. Many animals can respond to hot temperatures, but the unpredictability is testing the limits of even the toughest species. Dr. Christine Cooper, a biologist at Curtin University in Perth, studies how numbats, kookaburras, parrots, echidnas, and other Australian animals respond to these heat waves. Sometimes they find simple ways to tolerate harsh conditions, like eating at new times of the day. But some also have fancy physiological tricks. Recently, she's been studying zebra finches, a desert bird that weighs less than 15 grams, but can endure extremely hot temperatures. She and her team discovered that zebra finches are incredibly adept at adjusting their heat production to regulate their body temperature. Yep, so the physiology of species isn't set and fixed, so we know it can vary. So if you measure you know, the basal metabolic rate of a bird in summer or winter, it's going to be different. Um, if you measure... Um, the critical, lower critical temperature, the upper critical temperature, it varies. So we know that birds um, and mammals can respond to different environmental conditions and they do so um, within their, their current um, physiological scope. And so with this study, we were really interested to see how they could modify their physiology to better cope with these extreme events. As the climate changes with more unpredictability and more extremes, it becomes increasingly clear that we need to understand better how animals respond to those extremes so that we can more accurately predict their future prospects. On this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Christine about the relationship between animals and climate, the varied and astonishing ways that animals respond to extreme heat, and their fates in a rapidly warming world. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. (music) 
we want to talk about a lot of things today. We're going to start in the arena of climate change and especially the heat waves that um, we experience a lot of parts of the world now, but but particularly where you are in Australia. Um, you studied a lot of things in the last few years, including the iconic species of Australia, like the echidna. Um, but you've particularly done a lot of work on birds. And so let's set up where we're going, talking about what we know about climate change effects on birds in Australia, um, and in particular with regard to these heat waves. Okay, so um, one of the um, things that we've noticed in Australia is that there's an obvious increase in mean climate, but one of the more probably pressing things for wildlife is the potential for an increase in extreme events. So um, higher maximum and minimum temperatures, and these can be more problematic. So for terrestrial animals, they already deal with pretty big diurnal and seasonal differences in climate. Um, so they can usually accommodate small mean increases, but there's these extreme events that can become much more problematic. Um, and birds in particular can be susceptible to these because they're generally small, they have um, a poor ability to store resources they're mostly diurnal they don't usually shelter underground or places like that like mammals do so they really take the full brunt of some of these extremes and particularly in Australia we do have seen lots of examples of mass die-offs of birds where hundreds to thousands of individuals have been impacted by some of these extreme heat events so it makes a really interesting system to study. Is it, is it the, the maximum temperature on a given day that leads to mortality or is that the temperatures are sustained for a few days or, or both? I think it's both. And one of the things that we've found is that birds seem to cope pretty well with really high temperatures. And we think that it might be one of two things. So when they can't predict extreme weather events, so if a, a really high temperature just comes out of the blue and they can't necessarily prepare for that. And sometimes when it's really extreme and it's really prolonged and the minimum temperatures are high and they just don't have the time to forage and drink during the cooler parts of the day. So I think it's really extreme temperatures for a long period of time or really unpredictable extreme temperatures that just come out of the blue. Okay. And these extremes, I mean, you're sort of hinting that in the past they have happened. It's that they're a lot more common than they used to be. But when we call it extreme, like, that's a relative comparison. So what is what is that? I mean, is it, you know, surface? It's definitely not surface of the sun hot, but how does almost. the heat... Com- <laughs> almost. <laughs> Depends on where you are in Australia, right? <laughs> but um, wh- how, hot, how hot is it compared to, you know, so the average hot day? So the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia defines a heat wave as three consecutive days with minimum and maximum temperatures higher than the typical temperatures for that area at that time of year. So it obviously really varies depending where you are. Um, but some some areas, you know, you're looking at 46, 47, 48 degrees Celsius Um so, yeah, we've just had you know, a week ago uh, another round of you know, record temperatures where we were getting 47 degrees in some of the inland parts. Yeah, um, so, so hard to it imagine. does get hot. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's talk about that. So, so where in Australia are these problems the worst? I mean, you know, it sounds like the, the biota in any particular area must be, you know, more or less adapted to that area. And so they may be experiencing heat waves everywhere. But, but where are the heat wave problems the worst? The probably the climate change issues are most seen in our alpine regions. So we do have alpine areas in Australia, um, but they're relatively low in altitude. So it's about two thousand two hundred meters is the highest point on the continent. Um, and so for species there with climate change, there's just nowhere for them to go. Um, so we're getting less snowfall, earlier snow melt, and things like mountain pygmy possums are in real trouble because they they hibernate and they just yeah they come out of hibernation too early, so their food hasn't arrived. 
deprived and so there's this big mismatch. Um, the other areas that are probably most susceptible are some of the highland rainforest areas in North Queensland because again they're sort of high altitude nowhere else to go um, and so they're probably the two sort of ecosystems that are most at threat but the interesting biological ones are the arid zones because that's already hot and dry and extreme and they get more extreme so when we're trying to look at adaptations of species to extreme conditions then those are going to be the most interesting physiologically great well let's let's move on to a somewhat different topic um and this will just sort of segue into one of your your main things which is work on endotherms and the relationship between endotherms and climate and the heat balance of endotherms um and just to set the stage i would say you know, there, I, I view it as sort of two main ways that organisms can regulate body temperature, right? So if you're an endotherm, you're producing lots of internal heat and possibly regulating that heat production, but also regulating pathways of heat loss to, to be the temperature that you want to be. Versus being an ectotherm, which means that your body temperature reflects much more your sort of local microclimates and the you know the where, where you situate yourself in the environment, and so regulation comes down to moving through microclimatic mosaics in the environment as a way of a regulation. So, so let's just focus on endothermy and maybe give us just a, a sort of the physiologist overview of what endotherms do to regulate body temperature. So the classic sort of Scholander-Irving model of, of endothermy is if an animal's keeping its body temperature, we'll say constant, say 40 degrees, then as ambient temperature slowly increases, say from 10 degrees up to 30, you have a decrease in the metabolic heat production that's required to keep that body temperature constant. And the slope of that line um, relating metabolic rate or metabolic heat production to ambient temperature is a thermal conductance, which is a measure of how easy it is to lose heat to the environment. So if body temperature just staying constant you increase um, your heat production as it gets colder you decrease as it gets warmer and eventually you will get to the thermoneutral zone which is where you're in thermal equilibrium so you don't have to do anything active to stay warm or cool once you get to ambient temperatures above that the upper critical temperature then you are saying to um, need to do something to keep cool so you actively have to cool and when you get to the point that your body temperature is the same or um, as ambient temperature or ambient temperature even higher than body temperature, then the only way you can lose heat is through evaporative cooling. Right. So then you start to increase your evaporative water loss to, to keep cool. Right, right. Awesome. So so a couple of quantitative follow-up questions about that. So, you, you know, I guess the my human intuition is that if I'm out on a cold day, you know, my metabolic rate goes up because I'm trying to stay in my thermal neutral zone. I'm, I'm maybe shivering. But but how how large are these increases in in the cold end of the thermoneutral zone uh, that animals have in order to stay in equilibrium? So once you get below the thermoneutral zone, then you have to increase heat and heat production is oh, going to be less than about ten times basal. Um, so that's going to be you know, the really extreme end of how much you can increase your metabolic rate. So it's usually a bit. Yeah, a fair bit less than that. So ten times is getting to the, the top end of that. But but even two or threefold sounds like a lot, right? I mean Yes, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so you you're using a lot of energy to stay warm. Yeah. So there's things you can do. So you can decrease your thermal conductance, so you know, warm coat, um, increase blubber, you the things you can do to reduce your um your heat loss so you can um, reduce that energy but those things aren't necessarily changeable so if you're living in a varied environment having a big 
warm coat is not something you can instantly change. Um, so there's a balance between um, you know, how you can moderate that from time to time versus whether it's sort of fixed um, and that's going to depend on the environment that you're in. So some really well insulated animals that live in really um, warm environments, they have thermoneutral zones that drop right down to you know, 10 degrees. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they can... So, so at the other end, um, if, if we get to this hot end of the thermoneutral zone and um, they're starting to go uh, beyond that, you said that the only way to keep themselves cool enough is by evaporative cooling. But is it also true that metabolic rates go up uh, once you get above the the hot end of the thermoneutral zone yes so there's a point where you are no longer able to keep your body temperature at what we call normothermia so you are going to get an increase in body temperature so your cooling mechanism is not enough to dissipate all your metabolic heat production and that's when you start to get an increase in body temperature and then because of the q10 effect you'll get an increase in metabolic rate that corresponds to that and some of the um, energetic um, some, some of the heat loss mechanisms like panting can have an energetic cost. Yeah, so you might see right. an increase in metabolic right. rate because of that. And so that, that, that can be sort of a runaway process, right? Because the increased metabolism itself is creating more heat, which is the exact problem that they're trying to deal with. And so can they, can they get into this zone where it's just impossible to control because metabolic rates are rising? Yes, eventually you get to a temperature, an ambient temperature, where you just can't regulate body temperature anymore. Um, so you, know, you can increase your evaporative heat loss. Um, some animals will let their body temperature go up. So if you can increase your body temperature, then you're keeping that gradient there for um, conductive and convective heat loss. But there's eventually a point where you just can't do it anymore. And then you've got to trade off whether you uh, worry about dehydration from losing too much water or whether you worry or about becoming hot. Cooking in your own juices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so vivid, so vivid. Uh, Christine, you said um, Q10 just a minute ago, and I wonder that might come up again. Again, later can you define that uh, yes so that is the change in a rate for a 10 degree change in temperature so if you increase your body temperature by 10 degrees how much is that going to change your metabolic rate right okay that's a really nice way of sort of thinking about standard amounts of change in different physiological systems and functions and things so yeah in, in case and for most most biological systems it's about two to three times so yeah, which means which means the rate changes by twofold or threefold with a ten degree change in temperature. Yeah, just yeah, just to yeah. be pedantic. C- yeah. c- close it all up. Close it all yeah. up. Good deal. Um, so we did did a little bit about the what. We're going to talk a lot more about the what when we get to the specific. Um, avian research that you were doing but why why did endothermy evolve what what's the the thinking i mean act presumably ectothermy came first i am implying that but why did endothermy evolve i think there's a niche there so neither endothermy or ectothermy is better or worse than the other but it does enable animals to exploit niches that are not necessarily ideal for ectotherms so nighttime when it's cold high altitude there, there are niches to do things and it means that you're more more often in your optimal temperature. So in theory, you can reproduce more efficiently, you can get food more efficiently, but there's a cost, and that's the energetic cost that you pay. Um, So endotherms have higher metabolic rates, even for the same body temperature, because I've got to keep all that metabolic machinery ticking over. So there's an energetic cost, but the advantage is that you're optimal most of the time, and you can exploit niches that you might not be able to exploit if you're an endotherm. Do we know how many times it evolved? Was it a single evolutionary event or...? (laughs) Yeah, that's another fun question. <laughs> that's a good answer. Yeah, I mean, I like exactly that. seven. <laughs> I mean, there's endothermic 
um, invertebrates like bees are a good example. Um, you know, incubating female pythons are another classic example of you know, endothermic ectotherms. And then you have your endotherms that um, are endothermic some of the time. So a torpid mammal, for example, just thermoconform some of the time. So the line isn't clear, but endotherms have the capacity to, to regulate your temperature. Right. That was a quite a fair question production. because there's all different diversity within endothermy. So yeah, to, to, to be fair. Well, I want to ask about, um, so, so uh, of the major groups that have endothermy regularly, uh, those include mammals and birds, and yet they have different temperatures that, to which they regulate in general. Birds, birds are hotter. So why, why are birds hotter? Males and birds have independently evolved endothermy, so it didn't come from the same place, so they, they've independently gotten there. And yeah, they just have come up with different body temperature set points. Although the difference may not be quite as much as we think because birds are diurnal. Um, so their highest body temperatures through the day and their lower body temperatures at night and most mammals are the opposite and so it's convenient to measure birds through the day and it's convenient to measure bird, uh, mammals through the day oh, so I you're see. measuring one in its rest oh, so resting body temperatures for birds is sort of 38 degrees for most birds um, you know, and they're 42 when they're running around so yes birds are hotter but they may not be quite so much hotter so you know resting mammals typically 37 degrees the resting birds 38 maybe 39 um, and you know mammals when and they're running around doing stuff can be up to 40 degrees. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there is a difference. Birds are hotter, but mm-hmm. there's a bit of an artifact from measurement and convenience of measurement as well. And, and so so it, you work on birds. I mean, it sounds like you're invoking just sort of historical happenstance to explain it, but is there are there any adaptive arguments for why birds might be a degree or two hotter than, than mammals? Yeah. I think the reason they are is just an accident it's just an evolutionary accident but it does bring with it some advantages so if you're a bird and you're out in the, in the sun you're not your body temperature is going to be higher than ambient temperature to a greater extent so you don't have to worry about resorting to evaporative cooling so soon so there are some ecological advantages the cost of that is you're running hotter so it's energetically more costly so there's advantages and disadvantages and that is going to be different in different ecological contexts hmm. and there's nothing to do with flight right i mean bats are not appreciably hotter than mammals as i recall no not well they're, they're one of the warmer mammals they're certainly not a marsupial but they're yeah they're not crazy hot but they're they're up there this this issue of um hyperthermia as a way of dealing with arid hot environments is pretty interesting too and and i just there are a few classic examples of mammals that live in not large mammals that live in hot areas that let their body temperatures rise very high right so and that and that's a mechanism for avoiding having to spend all of the water to keep your your body down in the sort of normal human zone, right? So so how hot are the hottest mammal bodies out there? Usually about forty six is lethal. Forty six. So once their body temperature's getting <laughs> up to forty five, forty six, then that that's generally lethal. So most mammals forty three is is a bit of a problem. Um, so, yeah, when they're running around active 40, 41 maybe, but once they're getting to 43, 44, That's 45, pretty it's yeah. pretty hot. Yeah, they struggle. I'm just thinking of how I felt with my hottest fevers in my life and, mm. you know, it's miserable, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean there's, there's other reasons to feel bad besides just being hot, <laughs> but I mean... <laughs> Yeah, for birds, I think Andrew McKechnie measured body temperatures of 48, 49 for, I think, Quelia. 
Um, so they're some of the highest temperatures for endotherms, whereas your ants can you know, get up to 55. You know, there's some of those really hot ants. So, so endotherms aren't quite up there. But, yeah, I mean, 49 is pretty hot for a, for a bird. Oh, that's so. just amazing. I mean, that's so, such an incredibly warm. And, and you hear all the time, you, you talked about the, the penalties of high body temperature being water loss, which, you know, deserts of Australia, definitely a big problem. But what's the temperature where we start to worry about proteins breaking apart and enzymes not really working? I mean, does it, is that in a different range of temperatures or, or is that part of what's yeah, going so on Yeah, so that's here? getting up there. And it, it's quite interesting that there is that consistency. So, you know, for most endotherms, it is 45, 46. It's problematic for, for most things. And, yeah, um, that's probably got something to do with enzymes starting to denature. And, and if you were going to deal with them when you're at lower temperatures, then, yeah, they wouldn't work properly either. So, yeah, that is problematic. But it's the nervous system that seems to go to pieces first um, and that is sort of the, the immediate cause but yeah ultimately the enzymes will become denatured Um, but let's talk more about your specific work, Christine, um, and in particular this paper that you had not too long ago in Journal of Experimental Biology with um, Laura Hurley and Pierre Viche and Simon Griffith. And, um, you know, what, what you were trying to do there was get at what we've been talking about, this issue of climate predictability. I think you were. If I'm misinterpreting, you tell me that I'm off. Um, you're interested in climate predictability. You were asking about what exposure to high and low temperatures did to energy metabolism and body temperature in one of the iconic species, bird species of Australia, at least one of the ones that's in our pet stores here in the U.S., the zebra finch. And you were wondering about what happened to the ability of those birds to regulate body temperature and run their metabolism generally when you're exposed to short-term changes in temperature after having been experiencing these long-term conditions. So in a sense, that's all wrapped up in your words in this sort of emphasis on physiological plasticity. I think to be able to talk about the rest of it, given that you frame your paper that way, is probably how you want to do it. Can you tell us what you meant by physiological plasticity and why it in particular is meaningful with respect to this extreme unpredictability we've been talking about? Yep, so the physiology of species isn't set and fixed. So we know it can vary. So if you measure you know, the basal metabolic rate of a bird in summer or winter, it's going to be different. Um, if you measure um, the critical, lower critical temperature, the upper critical temperature, it varies. So we know that birds um, or, and mammals can respond to different environmental conditions and they do so um, within their their current um, physiological scope and so with this study we were really interested to see how they could modify their physiology to better cope with these extreme events so we've done some earlier work measuring um, energy and water turnover in the field for these zebra finches in hot and cold periods and their water turnover didn't change their body mass didn't change um, so it was like well what are the mechanisms that they're actually using to, to deal with this how are they keeping you know maintaining body mass when it's cold or when it's hot um, and why aren't they you know really changing their water turnovers so we wanted to see what what the underlying physiological mechanism was what could they change about their physiology to allow them to to accommodate these different conditions Let, let's just talk for a minute about why so why why did you choose zebra finches as as your focal species and and what did you do it sounds like from the paper it was some pretty heroic field work and making some pretty sophisticated measurements in the field which i'm always super impressed with by physiologists so tell, tell us what's up 
Um, we've got a study site out at Fowler's Gap, which is out in central Australia near Broken Hill. And Simon has had um, nest boxes out there and been studying finches out there for a long time. So they're a really good population to study because there's a resident group of birds that are there. Um, we put in some artificial water so we could keep a small number of them there. Um, and they're an iconic species, so they're a desert species, but they're also a species that we know have been susceptible to some of these mass die-off events. Um, so how and if they were dealing with these high temperatures was, was really important. And Fowler's Gap was a great place to do it because it's a university research station, so there's power and a lab available um, to, to do that work. But, yeah, it was it was pretty hot when we were out there, which was great. When we applied for a grant to study birds in heat waves, which seemed like a really good idea at the time until we <laughs> until realized that, that we were uh, in the field so, <laughs> in the heat waves. So how hot are we talking during the, the working days? Um, the maximum I think we got to where we were there was about 46 Oof, degrees Celsius. Wow, I've, I've worked so, yeah, in so Arizona bit... in the low 40s, but not really in 46, 47. That's hot. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty hot. So, And the air conditioner used to die once it got over to about 33. So it would work fine below 33, but once it got to above 33 in the lab, the air conditioner used to pack it in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you say more about how you've done this? We don't usually get into the gory details of, of methods in these talks, but um, this is pretty cool how one gets data about body temperature and especially metabolic rate from little animals like this. So you're going out to these brutally hot places in the middle of nowhere. You're capturing these birds and then what? How are you getting the data that we're going to talk about in a minute? So there were sort of three parts to it. So the first was measuring their field metabolic rate. So that involved catching the birds, giving them an injection of isotopes of oxygen and hydrogen, taking a blood sample, letting them go, catching them two days later, taking another blood sample, and then looking at the turnover of the isotopes. Then we wanted to look at the mechanistic side. So we wanted to measure their metabolic rate and water loss. So that was open flow respirometry. So we dragged out a couple of respirometry systems, set them up in the lab there. Um, we'd catch the birds in the morning. We'd fast them through the day in an outdoor cage where they had water but no food and then we'd measure them overnight um, and then we'd also catch some birds to do some hormone blood chemistry so, so for well. the uninitiated that's two different ways of measuring metabolic rate right so can, can you say what what those are so field metabolic rate is measuring the energy of a wild free-living bird um, and the water turnover of those birds while they're out there doing their thing. Um, and that's what the, the isotopes allow you to do. That's right? the isotopes yeah. allow us okay. to do, yep, yep. And then the open flow respirometry is a standardized measure. So you can put your animal under standardized conditions. So we did them at 30 degrees, which is thermoneutral, and 40 degrees, which is a tolerable but challenging temperature for these birds. And then you can measure their uh, metabolic rate, um, their water loss, and you can calculate their conductance. And we measured their body temperature as well. So one's a sort of standardized um, approach using really standard techniques of a resting bird under controlled conditions. And the other is what a bird is doing, it's sort of a snapshot in time time of its energy and water turnover. So the, the two major findings that, that I remember from the paper is surprisingly that hot days were not stressors for the finches. Um, in terms of the, the birds maintaining their body mass as long as you were giving them drink or drinking water and that they also shifted their thermal neutral zone to these higher temperatures. So let's do these in, in parts. What do you, the, they're not stressors? These birds are not experiencing these 40-plus these degree days as stressful? 
No, so they were able to accommodate them. So they didn't lose body mass. In fact, we found that the cooler days, and cool out there was anything below about 36, um, they they were more stressful for the birds. They actually lost a bit of body mass on the cooler days because, um, you know, it, it, they'd had a drought for two years. It had been no more than about 10 mils of rain events in, in the last two years. So there was very little food around. And so I think the, the energetic issues when it was cold and having to keep that heat production up was worse for them than, than being able to, to accommodate those hot days so they could do it and that's why we're interested in how did they do that so when we put them in the lab and measured their physiology so they were letting their body temperature go up by about three degrees and that meant they were saving water and that water temperature trade-off was probably giving them about three hours extra that they didn't have to drink through the day that's amazing i, I don't know how much people know about zebra finches but to add the details to the system it makes it stick even more for me. These are very tiny birds. They're 15 grams or so on average. Is that about right? Yeah, even smaller than that, Yeah, captive ones would be right? about 15. Our field ones were 11 to 12 grams. Okay. Right. And then Some of the insects they worked on are bigger than that. Yeah, exactly. And then and the, the temperatures, you know, for the Americans that are listening, we keep throwing around 40s and these kinds of things. 42.7, which is, I think, some of the temperatures you were at some point exposing them to, that's 109 Fahrenheit. So that's um, tiny bird, fifteen grams at one hundred and nine Fahrenheit, and they're sh- brushing it off. Don't don't bring the cold temperatures to me. These warm <laughs> temperatures are no big deal. <laughs> yeah, and they they seem to be doing that a lot by predicting the hot days. So days that were really hot, they were coming in early to eat and drink. They were disappearing through the middle of the day, and then they were topping up in the afternoons. Whereas on the cooler days, they were eating and drinking throughout the day. So I think it was that predictability of like, it's going to be hot today. I need to get my food and water early. Was letting them get through the day. So they were somehow knowing, and presumably from the early morning temperatures, that it was going to be hot that day, and they were anticipating that. So before it got hot, they were feeding a lot more in the mornings. Yeah. Um, wow, interesting. So, so let's also talk about this this idea of shifting your thermoneutral zones and these the higher equilibrium body temperatures of the finches that you found, right? So they, I think you said in passing that they were three or four degrees warmer in the hot treatments, right? So, so how how do they do that? So during the hot phase, you, you've sort of got two ways you can shift your thermoneutral zone on the short term. So you can either change your conductance or you can move your body temperature set points. So it seemed that these guys were just moving their body temperature set point up. And so that equilibration temperature um, was at a higher ambient temperature. So you can't easily, you know, acutely change your conductance. You can do it to a certain extent, but once you get to those high temperatures, you're already maximising your thermal conductance. So they can't suddenly shed all their feathers and molt and grow new ones. Um, so the most logical thing they were doing is changing that body temperature set point. So if you move your body temperature up, then you're moving the ambient temperature that which you're at equilibrium up yeah, a little gotcha. bit as well. And, and to be clear for our listeners, so when you say conductance, you're talking about... Um, the resistance to heat loss or the inverse of the resistance to heat loss, right? So how easy is it for the the heat to go out of the body? Yes. So I think of conductance as the opposite of insulation. So, so in terms of, um, so, so that shift in thermal neutral zone and body temperature, you would consider that a a form of plasticity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, um, just, you know, overall in birds, let's say stepping outside of this, this system, how, how common do you think these sort of shifts in thermal neutral zone and body temperature are as a way of, of dealing with hot temperatures? 
Is that for desert birds? I'm guessing that they're reasonably common. So you know, we know that they can acclimate and acclimatize. So we know they change seasonally. Um, we know where they change in the lab. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of field um, work done. So there's been a lot of really high temperature field work that Andrew McKechnie's been doing lately, and he's showing some acclimation from different sites. Um, and you know, this was really interesting to do it really acutely. So there's been some sort of more chronic acclimation and acclimatization work done um but yeah it was it was interesting that it could do it so acutely and as i said the next step would be really nice to go back and see you know what happened after one day of a heat wave what happened after two days what happened after three days so we measured them at the end of the third day um and i again just to for the for the listeners i think you're saying acclimation and acclimatization i don't know if we really want to get into the details of what distinguishes those because it's kind of esoteric for all of everybody except those of us that do this kind of thing. But the acclimation um, is this sort of longer scale adjustments, presumably involving some of the same short-term plasticities that you're focusing on. Is that right? Yeah, usually we use acclimatization for wild animals in the field and acclimation for captive animals in the lab. Okay, but in general, so it's just sort of prolonged processes. periods of making adjustments to changes in temperature. Yeah, or exposing other them to different right. yeah, conditions. Okay, yeah. okay. I wanted to ask also about mechanism, just just the whole water loss issue. Um, and you've written some really interesting things about, about water loss and regulation of, of water loss. And so, you know, I think... The, the human-centric way of thinking about this is sweating, right? So if we get hot, we start to sweat. But many things don't sweat, and they have other forms of um, or pathways by which they lose the water vapor that's carrying away the heat. So in birds, what, what are those pathways, and, and how do they exert control over them? So for birds, two major pathways is your respiratory water loss, so through the ventilatory system, or cutaneous water loss across the skin surface. So panting or gula fluttering is increasing your respiratory water loss when it gets really hot. Um, but even at low temperatures, so thermoneutral and below, it's going to be some inevitable water loss across the, the lung surface and, and through the respiratory system. When it gets hot, they might not be able to sweat, but they can increase their cutaneous water loss. So they can increase the permeability of the skin. So at high temperatures, we call that sort of thermoregulatory water loss. And that's where they're increasing their water loss to lose heat. But at lower temperatures, there is inevitable water loss just because the skin sure, is permeable sure. to water vapor and the lungs. So, so that cutaneous water loss is really interesting, right? So birds don't have sweat glands like, like we do. But, uh, I mean, is the magnitude of the water loss on par with what we might see in a sweating human or a sweating mammal? Uh, is, it, is it a big Not component of the overall water budget? <sighs> Um, evaporative water loss, so respiratory and cutaneous, can be up to 70% of the water budget um, for some species. And different species vary, but 50-50 is sort of a typical um, petitioning. Some species you lean more to cutaneous. And then, I mean, pigeons are weird. They have their weird cutaneous sort of sweating that's not really sweating. Um, but for most birds, it's, it's probably 50-50, maybe a little bit more cutaneous than respiratory. Um, but petitioning's not not trivial to do. Got it. Got it. And in terms of total, sorry, Marty, one, one more question. So, so, so in terms of <laughs> Just total, go ahead, Art. total water fluxes, uh, like what percentage of their body might they turn over in terms of water every day? Is it, are they really huge in these hot environments? So the zebra finches were turning over about four mils of water a day. Um, so they have you know, four mils out of 15 bird. total grams. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's a lot. Um, wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it, I mean that's yeah, that's when it's really hot. So they're obviously increasing their water loss. Um, but yeah, of their total water budget, evaporative yeah can be up to about seventy percent of their total water budget. So I think we wanted to ask one more question. Um, I want to talk about parrots briefly, and you mentioned uh, insensible evaporative water loss. So um, I, I do want to do want to come to that. Yes. So so tell us about that. Um, I mean, the rate at which they can lose water across the skin. We've just been talking about that and the mechanisms by which they can do it. But but in other species, especially in species that you know live in fairly wet habitats, it seems to be something that they may be surprisingly adept at. To tell tell us about this parrot, this other JEB paper on the, on the two parrots. Yes, so a lot of the work on water loss is focused on thermoregulatory water loss. So what's happening to water loss at high temperatures when animals are losing water to, to um, lose heat. But there's always water loss happening. So at thermotrality and below, animals are losing water just because their skin and their respiratory surfaces are permeable. And that's what we term insensible water loss. And for a long time, we thought that was just... Um, physically driven. So it was dependent on the water vapor pressure gradient between the animal and the environment. So if it was really humid, you would have a smaller water vapor, vapor pressure gradient, so you'd lose less water. If it was really dry, you'd lose more. But we've found that animals don't conform to this sort of physical model. So water loss, um, insensible water loss, seems to stay fairly constant depend regardless of what the water vapor pressure so it's not that linear relationship that we've always thought there to be um, and the obvious thought was well it's water conservation so you know animals are doing this so that when it's really dry they're saving water but we've found that mesic species seem to do it just as well as arid species so that isn't really consistent with a hypothesis that it's for water conservation. So the other reason they might be doing this is for thermoregulation. So if you're at a given ambient temperature and you're at really high humidity, if your water loss is impeded, that means also your heat loss is going to be impeded. So if the at any one ambient temperature, if you change the um, relative humidity of your environment and the water vapor pressure of your environment, that's going to impact on your heat balance, which means you're either going to have your body temperature change or you're going to have to mess around with your heat production or your conductance to keep that body temperature constant. So if animals can regulate that water loss against the humidity gradient, then they're not messing up their heat balance. So at the moment, we're thinking it's probably thermoregulatory rather than um, water conservation. So, so if I can just recap what you said before. So, so you found in these parrots that live in quite wet human environments, that they appear to have control over this sort of low level of background water loss. And the inference is that they're using that as a thermoregulatory mechanism. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So given that, uh, how are they doing it? What what are the mechanisms by which they're they're regulating? So they could be regulating their cutaneous water loss, their respiratory water loss, or both. So if it was their cutaneous water loss, then their skin temperature is the obvious way to do it, so changing their blood flow, or they could be acutely changing their skin lipids, which is not impossible, but it's maybe less likely to be able to do it over you know, 8 to 10 hours. Um, respiratory water loss, they could be changing their temperature of their expired air. So we know lots of animals have nasal countercurrent heat exchange systems, so they can cool the air that they're breathing out. So that's one way they could reduce the water content, or perhaps they're actually expiring air that's not saturated. So we always assume that animals um, expire air that's 100% saturated. There are some species, so camels, ostrich, that don't necessarily expire saturated air, so perhaps their air is not saturated. So that's sort of the next avenue is to have a look at what mechanism are they 
are they using? Mm-hmm. How saturated is the air that we expire? Is it 100%? Pretty close to 100%, yeah. And that's because we have not very nice nasal turbinates and we can't depress the, the water? We're pretty rubbish physiologically. <laughs> this, is, this is one of, yep. one of our less <laughs> impressive traits, yeah. Yeah, I've always been jealous about species with nasal turbinates, and I wish I had better ones. <laughs> we need to do a whole episode on why humans aren't special, just to stuff <laughs> yeah, all no, the traits. No, <laughs> how humans suck. <laughs> uh, Christine, so thank you so much for, for telling us about all the work that you've done. Um, not all the work, obviously, but at least a couple of flavors. But we're interested here about what's coming next, uh, and especially in the arena of um, physiological plasticity. So at the moment, I'm really interested in whether animals are more resilient than they are supposed to be to climate change and extreme events. So I'm sort of halfway through a project looking at echidna heat loss. So echidna is another one of those species that are meant to really struggle with high temperatures. So, you know, they're the lethal temperatures and ambient temperatures are meant to be about 38 degrees, but we know they're out there running around when it's you know, 38, 39, 40 degrees, and they're certainly not dropping dead. So we've been doing some thermal imaging work to look at their potential avenues of heat loss. Um, I'd really like to do some work on desert parrots. Um, so sort of to continue the zebra finch work onto some sort of common desert parrot species as models and then get into some of the more threatened desert space, uh, parrots like um, night parrots and um, princess parrots. Um, hmm. yeah. it, I mean, is the echidna sort of an arbitrary choice or what what is the motivation is there something special about the echidna that makes it especially sensitive or notorious their echidnas marty (laughs) (laughs) see that's what i'm saying it's an echidna which makes it stand out but was there something beyond weirdo spiky looking mammal creature Oh, echidnas are really interesting. They're monotremes, so they have a really low body temperature, really low metabolic rate, and theoretically a low heat tolerance. And it's always been argued as to whether this is adaptive or whether it's primitive. So is it just that they're a monotreme or a primitive mammal, so they're hopeless at thermoregulation, or is it adaptive because they eat termites and ants, which is a pretty lousy diet, so they have a low energy lifestyle, so they do everything low and slowly. So this has been a really... And I'm particularly interested in myrmecophates. So I did my PhD on numbats. I've worked for a long time time on echidnas um, and so sort of solving that question about you know if they are more tolerant to heat than what they're supposed to be what's the mechanism how do they do that okay and it, i guess platypus the only other monitoring we have we don't worry about that so much because it's mostly aquatic yes yes so um they obviously have quite a different heat issue so heat loss is probably more of a problem for them in aquatic environments whereas so so if you look forward five or ten years are there oncoming technologies that you view as being transformative and are there you know kind of fundamentally new things you're going to be able to to measure and do i'm really interested in small species and their interactions with the environment so the technology to have smaller and smaller loggers to get field data is is really exciting. So batteries are the sort of the limiting factor at the moment. So for loggers and um, transmitters, then you know you're trading off battery size against battery life against range. Um, so as we can get these things smaller and smaller and smaller, we can get them into smaller and smaller animals, which are the ones that are thermally the most interesting because. They're, they're more variable. Um, so that to me is really exciting. And, you know, we've already you know, got these little tiny temperature pits now that we can get into a zebra finch. So that is starting to get really exciting. 
Yeah, so, so to be clear, these are mostly data loggers that you're putting inside animals. They're either swallowing them or you're implanting them surgically. Yes, yeah, so surgery, we usually yeah. surgically implant um, animals into mm-hmm. the abdominal cavity. Um, mm-hmm. so, so and, the, and those are recording t- body temperatures and then transmitting them to... Yeah, so there's different approaches. Electric. So one's the logger approach where it just is onboard logging, just collects the data and you have to retrieve the logger. Then you've got transmitters that you know give a signal and you record that, that you know, the beep rate. Um, and then there's pits where you have a receiver pad, a bit like the pit you put in your dog for the you know, ID, and that can also do temperature and activity. So if you've got a receiver pad sitting there, the receiver pad actually energizes the pit. Um, so, you know, we've, we've been asking you a lot of questions. One might say grilling you. Um, what else would you like to say? Would you make sure you want to make sure that the audience knows in terms of climate change, bird energetics? What else do, do we not get to? Um, I just, I guess how exciting it is to, to do science and be able to tackle some of these big questions um, you know, about out the environment and how animals respond and and to be out there and the importance of a combination of I guess lab and field approaches so you know lab approaches tell you what animals can do field approaches tell you what they do do and the combination of those two things I think is really powerful for looking at what are they doing and how are they doing that um, and sort of the the utility of some of the, the pure science to potentially have applied outcomes down the track so you know we might look at you know, how animals regulate their water loss, which is not necessarily an applied question, but we need to know how animals work to be able to then apply that to conservation and management down the track. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Spoken like George Bartholomew. Great answer. Most. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology, which was sponsored by the Journal of Experimental Biology. You play a huge role in sustaining the show financially. If you want to support great science communication like Big Biology, consider making a monthly donation to our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Please spread the word about Big Biology by telling your friends and colleagues about us, sharing our episodes on social media, or leaving us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. On our next episode, we talk to Dave Goulson, professor of biology at the University of Sussex. Dave studies the much-discussed insect apocalypse, focusing on the long-term trajectories of the world's bees. So there are 20,000 species of bee in in the world, and um, the the sad truth is we haven't got a clue what's happening with most of them. Um, There there is no long-term monitoring scheme in place for, and this is this is actually you could have made the same statements about insects generally, you know there are 1.1 ish million named species of insect, and for the very large majority we haven't got any data at all on on any measure of their population change or range change or anything else really. Before we go, we also wanted to let you know that we're starting to upload transcripts for old episodes on our website. Right now, you can find transcripts for our conversations with Dennis Noble, Barbara Hahn, Massimo Piliucci, and others. We have a team of volunteers who are transcribing these episodes, so expect more soon. We want to make sure to give a huge thank you to these volunteers. Our listeners have been asking for transcripts for years, and we really appreciate you making this happen. Thanks to Zachary Baker, Hugh Tullock, Will Friedman, Shane Story, and Angela Trinkle. You guys rock. 
Thanks also to Matt Blois for producing the episode. Ruth Dimry wrote the script. Jordan Greer, Ajinkia Dehake, Dana Baxter, and Ruth Dimry manage our social media channels and help produce the podcast. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.